Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Practicology Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We are joined today by a special guest contributor coming to us from Bridge of Weir, just outside of Glasgow in Scotland. It is Stephen Grant. Stephen, thanks so much for giving us some of your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Matthew. It's good to be with you. Our privilege. And you know, here on the Practicology Podcast, we used to be in the habit of giving people the reminder that the Bible belongs not only by the stack of commentaries, but also by the pile of dirty dishes. The idea being that the theology of the Bible is practical. And your subject today, Stephen, is another good example of the practical relevance of Scripture. And we're learning again that Scripture's teaching is going to shape our hearts and behaviors and will lead us to practical actions of love towards others. Absolutely. Um, I think that the subject today that I want to speak about, the subject of spiritual restoration, is so practical uh, how we can, in love, restore friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen into sin, sadly. And I want to come at this from a section in the Bible, Galatians chapters 5 into chapter 6. But before I get there, I think it's important that we just speak a little about why people need to be restored in the first place. Uh, I think that most Christians, are, I would hope all Christians would be realistic enough to realise that sin is absolutely devastating in our lives as Christians. We came to the Lord Jesus to have our sin forgiven, but we realise as Christians that sin is still a reality in our lives, in our practical everyday lives. We are living in an environment where we are tempted to sin and there is the strength of the flesh within us that causes us to sin and it removes so many good things from our lives, from our walk with the Lord. It removes things like joy and peace and fruitfulness and usefulness for the Lord in his service. And it also, of course, uh, takes away the, the blessings and benefits that others in relationship with us can, can experience from us as Christians, um, those who we work beside, those in our family, and our relationships with them are affected by sin. And also, of course, the Lord himself is not receiving the worship or the service that he really ought to from our lives. So sin is such a serious thing. And I think it is a real priority for us as Christians to face up to it and to face up to it personally and also to make ourselves available to help others who are facing up to it in their lives. Amen. I was just looking at this book on my bookshelf, The Forgotten Command, Be Holy by William MacDonald. And I think it's just always a, a relevant reminder to our hearts that pursuing holiness is a is a valuable thing. It's a needed thing. It's important to God. And it's not something that is... Uh, just for ourselves individually, quietly and personally either. Uh, I think when you come to the Bible, you see that sin is so serious that it can affect our local church that we are part of, our local assembly. And there's instruction in the New Testament that corporately the local church should not be neutral or passive in relation to sin amongst the Christians. And for example, um, in First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and there was a real problem of sexual immorality within that church. And he writes in verse 4 and verse 5 that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord Jesus. And it's not only that sexual immorality that we have to face up to, important though that is, but even in a local church, there's all sorts of sins that can raise their heads, if you like. Um, Paul writing to Titus in Titus chapter 3, he speaks about someone who's a heretic and that person needs to be admonished and even rejected if they continue with false teaching and false practice that flows out of that sort of teaching. Yeah, and I know you'll develop this more a little bit later, but those references show us that loving people, both individuals and the church of God as a whole, that, that requires our concern about sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And I, I don't mean in the sense of prying into their lives, snooping into their lives, and I don't mean in an arrogant, judgmental spirit, but because just as you said, sin is devastating. It, w- it will wreak havoc in their life and the lives of others around them, the lives of others in the church. So our love for them means we don't want them to continue down that path. Absolutely. And I sometimes think that there is a danger that we could simply abdicate responsibility to a local church to deal with sin that we recognize in others. But we have relationships as well. The Bible acknowledges this too, um, individual relationships with other people. And there may be issues of sin arise within these relationships. And the Lord Jesus himself, speaking to his disciples, he instructed them to make sure that you deal with them and that you deal with them not by talking about an individual to others, not by gossiping about people's failures, but actually by going and speaking to the individual concerned. And there's a whole section in Matthew chapter 18 that gives guidance and instruction about how to do that appropriately and sensitively, that it might produce the fruit of reconciliation and repentance um, where there is sin. And so corporately, the local church has a responsibility about sin in our lives. And individually, in our relationships with others, there's a responsibility not to gossip, but rather to speak in love and seek reconciliation and seek repentance in relation to our our relationships with other individuals. So in in Matthew chapter 18, as I say, the, the natural instinct of an individual would be perhaps to speak about someone rather than speak to them. And that causes so much damage. But that's not the way that the Lord Jesus instructs us to deal with these problems. Where sin has come in and where there has been um, offence given or where there has been a problem arisen in a relationship, maybe a friendship that's been long-standing, something like that. And the instruction in Matthew 18, I'll just quote the verses, The Lord says, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, there is gain thy brother. And that's a beautiful verse of the Bible that speaks about true love and honesty and integrity. And someone has perhaps done you a wrong. Well, instead of sitting in anger and telling other people about it, go and speak to them and do it alone. And if that person responds and repents and accepts that there is an issue, then that relationship can be healed. But then the Lord said, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And then if that doesn't produce a favourable outcome, the Lord said, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. 
This is a sort of simple process of escalation um, to get a re resolution. And so you go to someone individually and if they hear you, you've gained that brother, the relationship is restored. If they won't hear you, then take two or three witnesses when you go to them. If they won't uh, respond positively in that context, then tell it to the church. And perhaps the elders of the church acting on behalf of the church would intervene to seek to bring a resolution. But if none of that produces a favourable response, then you need to look at that individual and treat them as if they're not a Christian because they're certainly not believe, behaving like a Christian ought to behave when these steps are taken. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, their refusal to repent after these repeated attempts sort of implies that they are not a Christian, right? Isn't that the point? I think that is the point. I think that you need to go to the, you know, the second, third, fourth, fifth mile, if you like. And uh, once you get to that end point, when someone simply will not respond to sincere um, attempts to resolve a problem that's really a problem of sin ultimately then you need to consider that person who's not behaving like a Christian uh, could well not be a Christian. Well our setting back in Galatians 5-6 where uh, you said you wanted to take us today that certainly implies that it is a Christian struggling sin so how does how does all of this relate to the ministry of restoration there in Galatians 6? Why don't you take us there? Yeah, this is, this is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a number of local churches in an area called Galatia. And these Christians had a real problem amongst them. There have been people coming in amongst them, teaching them, teaching them a false gospel, not that Paul had taught them, but something different. And in fact, Paul writes that letter to confront these Christians with the error that they had received and that was having an impact amongst them and he challenges them really and he explains to them that the way that they had come to the Lord Jesus Christ is not now the way that they are living for the Lord Jesus Christ that they had come repenting of sin they had come in an acknowledgement that all their efforts and good works uh, could not deal with their sin and they required to come and in faith trust the Lord Jesus Christ and they had to depend upon him and him alone. And that was how they came to the Lord Jesus Christ. They started in that way. And now they've been taught that in order to live for the Lord Jesus, they need to have a works-based outlook in life. And they not relying upon the Holy Spirit, and not living in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. They had to live their life like a tick box list of do's and don'ts and that resulted in a weakening of their spiritual strength as you go through this uh, letter and you come to the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6 and Paul has spoken about the problem he's spoken about the the weakness spiritually that that sort of approach to Christian living brings where you are simply looking at Christian life as a set of rules and regulations rather than the, the life of Christ in you lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he wants now to deal with the possible outcome of that sort of life, which is that someone could be really damaged in their walk with the Lord and could fall into sin as a consequence of that sort of life. And so when you come to Galatians chapter 6 and perhaps 
that it might be appropriate just to read verses 1 and verse 2, which are the, the main verses dealing with this. So Paul says this in chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. And I've got three little expressions um, to help us remember what is being taught here. It appeals to me in this way. And these expressions cover more than the two verses I've written, but certainly are based upon them. And it's this idea of number one, when you discover someone like that, someone who has been weakened in their walk with the Lord, who is not walking in the spirit and as a result has fallen into sin. The first instruction could be summarised in this way. We need to help them up. They've fallen down. We need to help them up. And then secondly, we need to hold them up. We don't just help them up and then abandon them. And then thirdly, we need to build them up so that they are able to stand again and able to walk with the Lord as once they did. So that's the three sort of ideas, Matthew, and in what Galatians 6 is going to speak about. All right, that's a good way to go about it. Hope our listeners caught that. Help him up, hold him up, and build him up. Why don't you go ahead with the first one, Stephen? Okay, thanks, Matthew. So help him up. Um, verse number one of Galatians 6, the detail of it is, is quite important. And he says, if a man be overtaken in a fault. And this idea of being overtaken it means to be caught unawares. It's not something that's a pattern of life. It's not something that's been characteristic of this individual. This Christian is living his life, and I would judge by the flow of the, the, the letter of Galatians, he has, he has responded to this false teaching, this error that he's heard, and he's adopted a more legalistic view to life. He's making sure he just ticks all the boxes, the rules that he's been told he has to keep in order to please the Lord. And he's slowly and surely being weakened. And as a consequence, one day he falls into sin. He starts the day and by the end of the day, he has been overtaken in a fault. Now, this is a possibility. It's if. It's not a certainty. Um, and I think he could be as surprised by the fault itself as you would be seeing someone being overtaken in that way. Yeah, I was noticing a commentator on this passage just a little bit earlier using the phrase entrapped or that word overtaken, again, implying the same thing that you've been saying. This is, this is not something that he was necessarily looking for, but uh, his temptation caught him by surprise he's, and he's been entrapped and overtaken by the sin. I think that sometimes when we, when we fall into this trap of thinking that it's enough to make sure I do the right things, I be in the right places, I present myself in a certain way to people around about me, I dress in a certain way, all these external things that are in and of themselves, not bad, many of them good actually, but without the reality of an internal walk with the Lord and a relationship with the Lord and a yielding to the Spirit of God in my life, I'm actually, unknown to myself, getting weaker and more susceptible 
to temptation round about me. And I think this is what's happened to this individual. He has, I can just picture myself or someone else being like this and you think all is well and you're crossing, you know, you're crossing the T's and dotting the I's uh, and you're not actually in your own personal life in fellowship with the Lord, in relationship with him in reality. You're not speaking to him, you're not listening to him. And then you go out into the day, maybe a Monday morning, so to speak, and before the morning's over, you've stumbled, you've fallen, you've blundered. It's the it's the opposite of a of a walk. You, you've been tripped up, if you like, and so you are down. You've fallen in your walk with the Lord. Yeah, that's really interesting, Stephen. It's it's a little bit of a it's a, a sad irony in a sense because this person is doing these things, and uh, I guess what's happening is that the grounds of their confidence has become their own behavior as opposed to resting in the Lord and the power in the spirit. And of course, what we're, what we're sure to find when we're resting in our own behavior, when we have a self-confidence is that we're, we're, we're not as strong as we thought we were, right? That's absolutely correct. I think that it becomes a self-reliance rather than a dependence upon the power and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's, that's such an easy thing uh, to fall into, particularly for those who are serious about living for the Lord and who are committed in their lives to serving the Lord. And sometimes doing becomes more important than being. And I think that uh, I've got a little quote here from uh, Kenneth Woost, who I love to read, and he's always very helpful in his commentaries and expanded translation. And he says about this, here the apostle is speaking of the case of a Christian who, while desiring wholeheartedly to do the right, yet does the wrong, because he is not availing himself of the God-appointed method of living the Christian life. His sin is not therefore the deliberate violation of God's will and his word, but a lapse into sin through a self-imposed helplessness by not walking in the Spirit. All right, so then Paul comes in with this admonition, you which are spiritual, you who are spiritual. And within the context of Galatians, that to me is such a fascinating exhortation from Paul. I think it probably really got the original readers thinking, gets us thinking too, Stephen. Well, who are the spiritual people here? Who are the people that Paul is talking to? What do spiritual people look like? That's a very interesting question, isn't it? Because perhaps uh, the answers to that would be very different from different people. What does a spiritual Christian look like? What is the telltale signs, if you like? What's the external evidence? For that's all we can really judge um, in each other, what we see and what we hear and what we observe. And someone who is spiritual is someone who essentially is living in the spirit as Paul writes in chapter 5 of Galatians, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And someone who is living, yielded to the power and influence and authority of the Holy Spirit who resides within every Christian, the evidence of that is that the Spirit of God in our lives produces what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. The inevitable outcome in my character and conduct of the Spirit of God controlling rather than the flesh controlling me as an individual. And Paul writes about this elsewhere. He writes about it at length in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. And he speaks about the 
signs, if you like, the evidence of someone who is filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God. For example, he speaks in Ephesians 5, verse 19 onwards about joy and praise and worship. And he speaks about spirit-filled husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, about spirit-filled wives submitting themselves to their husbands, spirit-filled parents not provoking their children, spirit-filled children obeying their parents, spirit-filled employers being kind to those who work for them, and spirit-filled employees giving service from the heart as if they're serving Christ directly when they serve their own employers. And I think it's interesting, Matthew, that when you... You read Ephesians, you're finding that the evidence of a of a life which is spiritual is found in our relationships, the way we deal with each other in the home and in the workplace and in our relationships with our community, with our neighbours. It's not simply when we gather together as a local church, is my point. That's a fascinating point, and that's obviously so relevant here in Galatians 6 now because it's these spiritual people that are supposed to be involved in reaching out to their brothers and sisters who are stumbling. Yes, these are the individuals that the exhortation is written to, which I think is interesting because I know from my own personal experience that when you find yourself um, straying away from the Lord in the context of Galatians, falling into this sin, you probably are one of the last people to recognize it in yourself. But a person who's spiritual in the way that we've discussed has a responsibility of when seeing this in another individual, moving in love and compassion, and to, as Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 1, to restore. And I think it's interesting that this is not a suggestion. It's actually an imperative. It's a command. And it is the idea of putting something back together again to restore to former behaviour and character and to bring someone back to what they once were. This is the idea in the word restore. And to do so in a way that is not proud or arrogant or patronising, but he says, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So a healthy understanding of our own potential to sin and our own susceptibility and weakness is a great um, help when we go to restore someone who has fallen in sin in this way. Such a vital reminder. I recall uh, an older brother sharing with me a story of uh, a brother still older than him who had taken a younger brother with him to go and visit a saint who had fallen into sin and they were going to try and talk with them and, and be a help to them in the restoration they pulled into the driveway this believer's home he said to the younger brother with him in the car he said uh, he said tell me do you think happened to this believer do you think you're capable of doing something like that the young man said no definitely not you know i i, I never do anything like that brother just uh, put the car in reverse and backed out of the driveway and he said well I, I guess you're not the right person to join me on this visit point being that if if you don't recognize this own tendency this the, the flesh within you our own weakness, our own ability to be tempted and fall, then we're not really right spiritual state to help others have fallen. Yes, I think that's that's such a good point. And the only person who could um, restore people 
in a different way was the Lord Jesus, who had no sin in himself, no susceptibility to sin. But he still displayed such a compassion towards those who fell. You think about, for example, Peter and how the Lord in tenderness restored him from his his terrible and very public failure and restored him to service and restored him to fellowship and had a love for him. And I think that the, the spirit of the Lord Jesus is something that we can learn so much about when we think about restoring those who we ident- have identified as, as fallen into sin. Amen. Thank you for bringing us to Christ and for such a needed word, such a valuable work of restoration. So this is how we help one another get back up, this right attitude of heart within ourselves. Your second point is then to hold him up. We have helped him up and now we are to hold him up. Yes, this is is verse number two of Galatians chapter six. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the idea of sticking with someone, uh, not just a, a quick fix, if you like, but understanding that this person has a problem, a weakness, and that weakness isn't going to disappear overnight. It's not just going to be one, one phone call or one text message that's going to deal with this. You're actually going to have to get involved with this individual to help bear the burden that that person is bearing, that's oppressing that person to relieve that person, if you like. And in context, I've spoken about the legalism that was causing him to be weak and susceptible to sin and not live in the power of the liberty of the gospel. And the idea is to get alongside this individual, to encourage them, to lighten the load, if you like, and to do this um, in a very close and persistent manner. And to just be in fellowship with someone to help them. And that's different for, for, for each of us, what that will look like. It could look like a you know, a relationship built upon meeting someone once a week for a coffee. It could be an accountability sort of relationship. It could be just encouraging them from time to time, or it could be some other perhaps more direct intervention. But there's the idea of getting alongside and, and being with that individual and sharing the burden that they've experienced. Yeah, that is really good. It's it's also convicting to me, Stephen. I mean, here we're talking of being spiritual and not legalistic. How easy it can be take legalistic approach sort of to trying to restore someone and say, well, okay, I've I've met with them, done my duty, sent them the text message, so so now it's on them. But <laughs> you're pointing out the Christ-like spiritual person. This is not just a a one and done approach. It's not just checking off my list that I reached out to them, but it's genuinely trying to come alongside and help them. I think so, Matthew, because you can get the sort of picture of the burdens in this way. Um, It's a kind of poor example, but it gives the idea that if someone is going to move a heavy load, Perhaps you're, you're, you know, you're relocating your house and, and furniture has to be moved and there's a large piece of furniture that needs to be moved and you, you try and lift it by yourself, but you're not able to lift it. You might get it up, but you know, you're really struggling with it and someone comes alongside you. The idea is not that you can then just let the burden go, but someone can come alongside you and can share the burden and you can walk together and you're able to ease the load in that individual and so it's not just a you know a two minute thing but you're going to you're going to go on this journey with this individual and you're going to share the burden and make it easier for them and that of course is a time-consuming 
activity. Um, and it really requires a, a selfless attitude towards relationship to invest in another individual, um, which is time consuming and can be frustrating sometimes as well. But nonetheless, I think it's so important um, when we look to restoration as being a long term project for quite a lot of people, not something that's done in a week or two. So when we think about this idea of offering help to help someone up and also to ease the burden by sharing the burden. There is also an important uh, point to make here that sometimes when we are the person who has sinned and someone comes alongside to help us, we're very resistant to it. We don't want to talk about things. We don't want to open up. But I, I think that in scripture, the uh, instruction very often is the opposite to that. It's not bottle things up, but you know, James, when he writes in chapter 5 and verse 16 of his letter, he says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I think sometimes our pride is such that we're very resistant to help. We don't like to admit to weakness or we don't like to admit to sin and we try and go alone, which is often a disaster. Um, and and the, the Apostle Paul is writing to these Galatians and he's saying, look, this is actually the fulfillment of what he describes as the law of Christ, which is an interesting expression. And do you remember the Lord Jesus in John chapter 13, when he was speaking to his own, he said this, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And this was altogether not a new thing because God always expects his people to love one another. But here's a different standard, the, the standard of the Lord Jesus himself. And I think it's interesting in John 13, of course, the Lord Jesus demonstrates what he meant by that and just the extent to which that would impact relationships when he got down on his hands and knees and was willing to wash the feet of his disciples. He was even willing to wash the feet of the man who would betray him showing real humility and a servant attitude. And you don't get much more close and personal to an individual if you have to wash their feet. And that wouldn't really be my kind of personal uh, uh, pleasure, to be honest, but um, to get up close and personal to an individual, you see, it, you see it kind of illustrated in the fact that he was even willing to wash the feet of the disciples. And I think it's important that we don't live detached lives. We need to open up to not to everyone and not in a kind of sensational way, but with those who love us and who are seeking to help us and strengthen us, that we might help each other along the way. Because the truth of it is that none of us are immune to this sort of problem in our lives. Yeah, um, part of the concept of fellowship is not only knowing others but allowing ourselves to be known right i mean that's that's basic to any relationship relationship requires my knowing lives of others but it also requires me allowing myself to be known and you're coming at it from both angles there and that's important and when we are struggling with something like you say our natural tendency is to cover it up to hide it to uh, separate ourselves isolate ourselves from others but Really, those are the times that we really need the fellowship of the Lord's people. That's why the body is such a great metaphor of the church. You know, we need to be attached. We need one another's help. And the third little expression, uh, just to, to, to bring this to a conclusion, Matthew, the third little expression 
is not only to help him up and to hold him up, but to build him up. Again, this is something that shouldn't be ignored, that we want to have an impact upon each other so that we can help prevent this from happening in the future, or at least this being a recurring problem in the future. And I think uh, in verse 6, which I didn't read, I'll just read it now, um, he, he speaks about this sort of thing. And he says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. It's a tricky wee verse there, I think, but the, I think the, what he's saying is just this, that there ought to be a sharing between the one who is teaching. And of course, the, the true way of building someone up is to, to bring the word of God um, not in a, as I say, patronising fashion, but sharing the food of God for our souls and putting it into practice in our relationships and in our lives and helping this individual get back to what he had received at salvation in the gospel, back to living in the power of the Spirit and getting away from this legalistic attitude towards Christian living. And the person that is teaching um, ought to be sharing with the person that is being taught and there ought to be that coming and going between them. Um, I've got a quote again, and I haven't actually noted down who it's from. It could be Kenneth West again. And it says this, summing up the whole section. He says, you pick them up by confronting sin, calling for confession, repentance, prayer, calling them back to the word of God. You hold them up by an accountability relationship in which you get under the burden and help them carry the burden. And then finally, you build them up by sharing back and forth all the good, excellent moral truths that flow out of the process of teaching. As we, as we think about that, just, just summarising it, that all calls for serious selfless investment in our relationships. Um, a love for people and an awareness of our own susceptibility that one day we will be looking for someone to pick us up and to hold us up and to build us up. And so we ought to be willing to do the same for others. Yeah, what I love about this passage is how it puts the focus on the spiritual believer. He's not focused on the attitudes and actions of the individual who has sinned, but he's, he's bringing the word to the spiritual person. He's putting the responsibility upon them. And it is, the, it is only the truly spiritual people who are able to live up to this valuable ministry. And I think that we can thank the Lord in our own lives, certainly I can, Matthew, for men and women who have fulfilled this role in my life as I look back, people who were willing at times in my life to speak truth to me and to get alongside me and to recalibrate me spiritually, people who were spiritual. And I don't mean all preachers and Bible teachers, but people that I knew locally, particularly when I was growing up and a wee bit younger, who were able to have a real impact in my life and um, because they were spiritual and we thank God for them. Amen. I can honestly say I don't know where I'd be if it weren't for the involvement of other loving believers in my life and their, their care for me. So thank you for that reminder. And Stephen, thank you for these excellent words today. It's been fantastic. We appreciate your time. So thanks for your contributions to the podcast. I appreciate it as well, Matthew. It's been a pleasure and trust the Lord will just bless this podcast. Thank you. That is our prayer. May the Lord bless you all and help you to fulfill these words that Stephen has brought to us about 
being spiritual and a help to others and being open to others' help as well. Thanks so much for listening. 